It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Former Speaker of the U.S. House Paul Ryan says President Trump has a good shot at getting reelected if the economy continues to perform. There's low inflation, fast economic growth, and rapid wage increases. So even though Trump faces low approval ratings and scandals, he could get the most votes in 2020, says Ryan. We are now seeing the kind of wage growth and employment growth among middle-income um, Americans and lower-middle-income Americans that we have not seen in a long time. That's going to help the president greatly. In today's show, Ryan talks about the upcoming election, trade, immigration, and more. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Paul Ryan was first elected to Congress in 1998. He gave his farewell address in January. The Republican from Wisconsin served as Speaker of the House for more than three years and in 2012 ran alongside Mitt Romney as his vice presidential nominee. Ryan is a big believer in trade, and while he didn't always agree with President Trump on trade issues, he supports him on China. China's not playing by the rules, he says. It's a problem that needs to be dealt with. Here's his conversation with Judy Woodruff, anchor and managing editor of the PBS NewsHour. They spoke on June 23, 2019. So uh, we're here in Aspen. Uh, uh, first thing, though, I want to ask you about is a physical exercise routine. Everybody knows that Paul Ryan does something. I had to look it up. Extreme workout, P90X. Are you still doing that, or are you? I tore some ligaments in my hand, but I am doing that. I've I've gotten addicted to this thing called Peloton, which is. Really, yeah, every year. It's okay. kind of a crazy thing. Um, so, but my question... And I'm planning, I'm taking my 16-year-old at the Grand uh, with the Exum guys, and I'm doing, I'm doing the, the, the bells in, in September, and my wife's giving me this look. So uh, I see some, I see a lot of people who are inspirations to me in this audience, so I try to get in shape to do the things I like to do in life. But the thing I really want to ask you about is your father-in-law. He's 76 years yeah. old. His name is Dan Little. He's a lawyer in Oklahoma. Yeah. In February, he became the oldest person yeah. ever to complete the World Marathon Challenge. That's right. He ran seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Is this is this At real? seventy-six years old? Yeah. Is this this is your wife Jana's yep. dad? It's my wife's dad. Yeah. So this is real. He yeah. went from continent. He's to a continent. nut. Yeah. <laughs> He started in Antarctica, uh, went to South Africa, and then went around the world. He slept on the plane uh, in between runs and ran seven marathons in seven days so in seven continents. He's leaving you behind in the dust. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's, let's start um, uh, talking about where we think the country is politically right now. Where, where are you going to do, like, where? light and fluffy stuff? We did the fluffy with yeah, it. Yeah. But where, where are Americans, Paul Ryan, where are Americans right now in terms of how they think about politics and how they think about government? Extremely polarized. Uh, you and I have known each other for a long time. Uh, when I first got elected to Congress in 1998, uh, the Internet really wasn't anything like it is now. Uh, there wasn't a big cable system like we have now. And so I think the polarization of the country has, has gotten to a, a, a level that I don't, I've never seen before in my adult life. We've had polarized politics before, no two ways about it. 
you know, we've had big time elections. But I think we are at a, a hyperpolarized time. But I hope in this course of this conversation, I can convey to you that the system still works that the founders created this beautiful system of checks and balances, and it actually does really still function. So if you turn on the TV, or if you especially look at Twitter, you're going to pull your hair out. Um, but if you look underneath that, or what I always try to tell our members is, don't pay attention to all the white noise. Do your work. Things, for the most part, still get done. The system still works. The checks and balances do work. The, 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 the three branches of government are vibrant branches of government. That, that are always in healthy tension with one another, and they work. So I would say our politics still does actually work. Things still get done, but we are at a hyper, hyper polarized time. And when you get into a presidential election like this, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I'm hoping it gets better. So you're saying it's not just Washington that's polarized. You're saying the, the country is polarized. American yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, and, and let's talk about economically. I mean, where do you see us right now as a country? How, how strong is that's the economy? That's what I feel good about. Why? Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. Uh, that's what I feel very good about. So look at our growth rates. Wages have, uh, are at the fastest growth rate they've been in 10 years. We've got great productivity. We have more job openings in America than people looking for jobs in America. People are getting out of college and getting good jobs. So we've got low inflation, fast economic growth, and, and the kind of growth we were looking for when we did tax reform gets us the kind of productivity increases we wanted. We have amazing capital expenditures, which ends up saying that you're going to have higher living standards and higher wages, and we're seeing faster wage growth that we've seen in a long, long time. So, by the way, we're also the best economy in the world in the developed world. So our economy is doing actually quite remarkably well. I would argue that's because of policy. That's not by accident. It's because of the regulatory relief that has occurred over the last couple of years and because of the tax reform that we put in place for the first time in 31 years. We had the worst tax system in the industrialized world uh, until about a year ago. And now we're in the top three, arguably, in the industrialized world with respect to competitive tax systems. So that actually unlocks a lot of growth. And we're seeing a lot of that growth in the economy right now as a result of it. But some people are looking at those same statistics. They're looking at the same thing you are. And they're worried about a slowdown next year. J.P. Morgan just came out with a, uh, they said the probability of a recession next year is 45%. What are the implications? Of, what, what are the implications of that? What are the implications of even a serious slowdown? We still have business cycles. We haven't gotten rid of business cycles. But we haven't had a recession in a long, long time. So I... I'm not going to pre predict those things other than we're going to have recessions, we're going to have business cycles, but we have elongated this recovery uh, and made it a much stronger, robust recovery, I would argue, because of the last policies. Um, the Fed is a good question. What's the Fed going to do? I think they're in a pretty um, accommodating posture for now. Uh, I do worry about trade, and I think trade could be one of those what we call exogenous factors that could um, produce uncertainty in the economy that could give us that kind of a recession if we don't watch ourselves. But the fundamentals are very, very strong. But it's been a long time since we've had a recession, so clearly business cycles will reassert themselves. But I think we're going to be in this 3% growth um, posture for, for some time. But if, if we were, but if there were a recession, do you worry at all that we, whether we have the tools as a country, the fiscal tools, the monetary tools to deal with it? I, I, we do. I think that's important for the Fed to get ready for the next problem that could occur. And I think they're doing that. They're they're, they've been taking away their accommodative monetary policy. They're running off their balance sheet. Uh, 
So I think the Fed is getting itself in the position so that it can help. Um, the biggest concern in my mind, which has been one of my big issues, is in the future is the debt levels that we have. And that is unsustainable. And that's a whole other conversation. But right. where we've had running room to absorb economic blows, um, we will lose some running room in the near future because of our debt levels. Right now, we're fine. Our debt to GDP ratio is okay. But if we stay on the path we are on, and it's really demographics and health inflation, um, we, are, we will not have that kind of wiggle room we need to deal with um, recessions when we have them. And I want to come back to trade and to the debt in just a second. But, but in terms of the economy, for President Trump, for the Republicans up for re-election, how important is it that growth, I mean, what's the, what difference does it make whether growth is 3%, as you said, or what if it were? One percent or one it's and a half huge. percent. It's huge. It, look, look. I mean, look at the presidential cycles we've had. Look at look. Bill Clinton got impeached the year I got elected. He got impeached in 1998, and then he won re-election uh, in 2000. So, uh, or excuse me, he got re-elected in the last election before that. So, Bill Clinton shows you a president, even with tough approval ratings, with with scandals with a really good economy can get reelected. George Bush didn't have any scandal, had just won the first Gulf War, had a bad economy, something like 1%, and didn't get reelected. So I think the economy has a great, great deal uh, to, to determine whether or not a person gets reelected as President of the United States. That's why I actually think it's Trump's to lose because of the economy, because of how good the economy is doing. And more importantly, it's the economy in in sectors or in parts of our society that haven't seen growth. The wealth effect did very well for wealthy people during the Obama time when the Fed was pushing on a string. But we are now seeing the kind of wage growth and employment growth among middle-income um, Americans and lower-middle-income Americans that we have not seen in a long time. And that is, that is to the, to the, I think, to the testament of these policies we put in place, that's going to help the president greatly. If a recession occurs before them, then I think he's got a real problem, of course. Right. You mentioned uh, the debt. Let's talk about the deficit. You were a deficit hawk uh, yeah. for years and, and up through the Obama administration. We can now see the deficit. It is going through the roof again. Uh, it, it was five, I looked it up, $587 billion in Barack Obama's last year in office. It is now double that. Do you expect that to just keep on going? Yeah, we knew this was coming. This is not like a surprise to anybody. Uh, from what we call the, the CAPS deal we did with Obama a number of years ago, and then the sequesters that occurred be, between now and then, and then we've done three budget deals. I did two of them. I did one with Patty Murray. I did one with Barack Obama, and, and John Boehner, my, my predecessor, did one with uh, Barack Obama. Those CAP deals uh, cut, um, I'm doing it off the top of my head, about $800 billion in discretionary spending out of the baseline. So on what we call, what discretionary spending is, about a third of the budget, that's government agencies' budgets, their annual spending. We put a cap on that spending. And by putting the cap on that spending that we've done for a number of years now, that's saved a lot of money. But that is not where the money is in our budget. It, the the two-thirds of the budget is what we call entitlements. You automatically call for a, a benefit, you get it. You're a farmer, you get farm program payments. You turn 65, you get Medicare and Social Security. You're a veteran. You get VA health care. What's driving this, this debt and these deficits is, is a demographic function of the boomers going into retirement now. So we had this great baby boom generation that is now retiring. And so we're going from 40 million retirees to 77 million retirees within one generation. 
and fewer people behind them paying the taxes to pay for those programs. And those programs cost, they go up in cost about six to eight percent per year, primarily because of health care. And so that is sort of the stubborn thing. It's not a Democrat's fault or Republican's fault. It's just what it is. That's what's driving the deficit. So you cannot get this debt and deficit under control until and unless you deal with the entitlement programs and how they work. And that is something Medicare and Social Security, President Trump has said these are things that he doesn't want to touch. Yeah. Yes, he has. Uh, I, I, he and I have long disagreed on these issues. Uh, I've walked him through as many PowerPoints on this as I could. Um, How many was that? <laughs> you can just slide three or four and, you know. Um, uh, the health care bill we banned through the House, we actually passed. Uh, so if you think, um, just to do this on the back of the envelope, there's three health care entitlements. Uh, what you would know is Obamacare, Medicaid, and Medicare. Our health care bill that we passed in the House that failed by a single vote in the Senate um, dealt with the two, first two of those and would have put them on a path to sustainability and would have been, it was the biggest debt reduction bill ever passed by a Congress. Uh, it failed by a single vote. So that would have put us on a pretty darn good trajectory toward patient-centered health care, which I think would have gotten health care inflation down while still protecting pre-existing condition and, and the uninsured. But it would have dealt with two of the three biggest drivers of our debt. And then you would have had Social Security and Medicare, as it, which are the, the age-based, senior-based programs that are extremely important, the most important programs in the federal government, but they're going bankrupt. You had to do something to, to deal with these programs so that they're there for the next generation when they retire. Um, that is something that has is, that is just evaded us politically for a long time. Um, I, I used to hate commissions. I was actually on one of them because I thought it was Congress sort of ducking its responsibility, not doing its job. I've come around to the conclusion that it's probably the only way to fix these things is to create, uh, I was on both Simpson, that didn't work because it wasn't a fast track. Uh, the president, then Obama, could just disavow it and it doesn't go anywhere. The old Greenspan Commission in the 80s on Social Security, Social Security was the best formed commission in my opinion because that commission, we call it fast track. You cannot filibuster it, 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 it has to be voted on. So the commissioners produce the report, how do you make Social Security solvent? Uh, and then Congress must vote on it. Now, they have the final say-so, but it can't be delayed or filibustered. It has to be voted on. But none of this is I think on that's the, the smartest way to go in the future. But none of this is on the horizon. No, that's not on the horizon. No, it's not. And I think it should be. So what does that mean, I mean, for our country? Well, there's two things you got to do to get this debt under control. you got to grow the economy. We're doing that. We've put pro-growth measures in place, and you got to deal with entitlements. Um, the key entitlement reform, as I just mentioned, failed by a single vote in the Senate uh, and so now we, we don't see entitlement reform on the horizon. How much did the, I think you're going to have to get through this election before you get to that. How much did the tax cuts and the increase in defense spending, the Pentagon spending, contribute to the deficit? Well, the, the increase in defense spending is because the sequester cut defense so much. So if we were at defense spending, if we never used the sequester or had the budget caps, defense spending would be much higher than where it is today. So defense spending is actually lower than where it was thought to be, it, where it would be in the, in the mid-Obama years. So we actually cut defense a great deal. We cut it so much that we had a serious problem in the military. We were losing more people in training accidents and equipment failures because of, of, of the hollowing out of our force structure in the military than we were in combat. And we had people in Iraq and Afghanistan. So we had to do rapid surgery to rebuild our military. And now we're in year three of that military rebuild. But even with all that money being restored to the military, 
it still saved a bunch of money from where we were going in the early Obama years. And what about it's really not discretionary spending, Judy. It is entitlements. And taxes, look, I, I would, I'm, obviously I was the primary architect of this. Um, I believe it till the cows come home, which is a, that's a thing we say in Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it was extremely important to do. It is getting us the wage growth we were looking for. It's getting small businesses going again. But most importantly, um, we saw, I, I chaired the Ways and Means Committee before I was speaker, and that's where I spent most of my policy time. We saw on the horizon um, after 2017 a rash of what we call inversions. And we were seeing this. The, we, inversions are when a US company becomes a foreign-based company. They call it redomiciling. They go from being an American company to a foreign company because of taxes. We saw sector by sector of, of companies just going and over becoming foreign companies and saving the tax difference by being a foreign company. But what happens is when these companies, when they leave America and have no longer their headquarters in America, their, their, their alliance, their, their jobs, the social capital that comes from having these headquarters goes away. And we were seeing a rash of these things. So we believed tax reform is absolutely critical to stopping the bleeding from inversions. It's reversed. The, the day it passed, the guy who made my watch, a guy named Tim Cook, he's this guy who runs this um, device company. Um, <laughs> he said that day, he said, I am bringing back $350 billion into America. I'm gonna hire 20,000 Americans in, in new campuses I'm gonna build because of this tax law. And that $350 billion I could not bring back into this country until this tax reform passed. Those are the kinds of things that are happening as a result of tax reform. And you can't get your, your handle around the debt and the deficit unless you get the spending and the entitlements under control, but also you need economic growth. And so the tax reform was the key thing for us to get the economic growth we got. And let's talk about trade for a minute. Uh, President Trump's signature issue. It, it, this has become, I mean, is, is now the Republican Party uh, the protectionist party? I, I hope not. <laughs> I, you know, my background, I'm, I'm an old Jack Kemp guy. Um, I wrote the law called Trade Promotion Authority to give to Barack Obama the ability to go get trade agreements. So he and I, he, the guy just beat me in the 2012 election. So, <laughs> you know, we, we were always on the opposite sides of many issues. But when I saw that he wanted to lean in and go get trade agreements, um, which he wanted to do in his second term, we gave him the tools to go do that. So I'm a believer in trade. I think if you stand still in trade, you'll fall behind because other countries will go out and get better trade agreements for the, between themselves and we'll lose markets. So I've, I still hold that, that view. Um, the president and I have not agreed on a lot of these issues like 232, which is the steel and aluminum tariff thing. Um, I didn't want to pick fights with our allies like, like North America and Canada, but I absolutely agree with his, his decision on China. That is one where I always believed that's a fight we need to fight because they're not playing by the rules. I voted to have China enter the WTO in the early 2000s, hoping and thinking that they would rise in the rule-based system where they would play by the rules, not steal intellectual property, not force tech transfers, not fund state-owned enterprises to unfairly compete against international competition. Um, but they didn't do that. And I think if you believe in free and fair trade, you've got to prosecute it. So I think the president is exactly right to deal with China, I would just do it a little differently. I think the rest of the industrialized world is also a victim of what China's trade practices are. And only America could lead the industrialized world into a unified front to confronting China globally. And I think that's the right strategy. I think, I think the president's getting to that strategy. I think he's kind of 
making his way to there, but he's doing it through, you know, some fights with allies that I personally probably would have avoided. A lot of fights with allies. How many Republicans agree with you in, in, on this? A lot I mean, of Republicans agree with me on that, yeah. Um, so, I mean, we're, the, the Republic, is the Republican Party becoming the protectionist party? You're saying that this I don't, is temporary? There, there are some. Well, you remember back in the days when we knew each other when I was this young guy um, working for Jack Kemp and Bill Bennett. I was a foot soldier in then what we called sort of a proxy war inside the conservative movement. Um, that's occurring right now as well. It's kind of a sub... Matthew Continetti wrote a pretty good piece on this about a month ago on the Free Beacon. The Democrats have their own internecine issues. So do um, conservatives. And so there is definitely a debate within the conservative movement about what it is. And trade is a big part of that debate. I'm on the side of, of, of free and fair trade. I think you got to hold countries accountable like China, but you need to open markets up. And I think that's extremely important for us. We're, we're less than 5% of the world's population. So we've got to, if we want to keep a good, strong, growing economy, open markets up, getting trade agreements to do that. Uh, but holding people accountable also is a part of that. But there are, there are protectionists in our party. The Democrats are typ typically the protectionist party. That, the, the reason I was excited to help Obama with TPA was because he all of a sudden wanted to start doing trade agreements. For the first six years of his administration, he didn't want to do that because they're traditionally a protectionist party. So when I saw a Democrat stepping outside of that, I was eager to embrace that. But, but that is um, something that is definitely uh, seeping throughout the conservative movement now as well. You gave a farewell address in January as you were leaving Congress, um, and you talked about some things that were really important to you going forward, and you said, at, at one point, you said helping people lift themselves out of poverty is a personal mission for you. Mm -hmm. And then you challenge your own party not to let this issue drift from your consciousness. My question is, is there a way to do that and at the same time allow what is now a very successful private sector in this country that is growing like gangbusters, you just described it, can that growth continue? Can people continue to get you know, at the high end of the income level, just crazy uh, wealthier, and do something about those at the bottom. Absolutely, that's basically what I'm focused on now in my private life. So how does yeah. that work? So there are, there are well, in particular, there are three laws that I, I helped write uh, in the last session that are focused on doing just this. Uh, how do you create more upward mobility? How do you fight poverty at its core uh, so that everyone can enjoy this thing I call the American Idea. Not I, everybody. My foundation is called the American Idea Foundation. The condition of your birth doesn't determine the outcome of your life. You can make it in this country. It's what made this country. It's why my Irish and German ancestors came to this country. And it's a beautiful idea, but, but we've seen lately um, a classification of America. We've seen a stubborn uh, part of our country where you don't have that sense of upward mobility you see intergenerational poverty. So what can you do about that, and, and how do we focus on it? Uh, there's three laws in particular, and I hate saying pass a law and you fix this, because that's really not the answer, but there are things you can do to help and there are things you can do to hurt. We passed something called opportunity zones. It's something I worked on, a young 20-something working for Jack Kemp, and we called them enterprise zones. We think opportunity zones have a great potential of tapping um, among the $8 trillion of unrealized capital gains and pushing it into the poorest um, census tracts in America. We have something called uh, social impact bonds, private sector capital, private sector ideas for public sector goods, like solving homelessness in a certain geographical area. And we just passed a new law on evidence-based policy where we can now use data and analytics 
and best practices to focus on fighting poverty more effectively. The long and the short of all of this is for, what is it now, 53 years on the war on poverty, trillions spent. We basically measured success in the war on poverty based on effort, input. How many programs are we creating? How many people are on those programs? Because that's really kind of all we had. We spent $800 billion a year through the federal government on 95 different poverty programs, but we don't actually measure whether they work or not. We now have the ability to do that, so we should do that. These are more than pilot programs? Yeah, yeah. yeah. These, I'm talking about just lots of different federal programs right now, but most of these programs are not evidence-based programs that are measured in whether they achieve their outcome or not. So we now are at a time where we can, we can measure our, our war on poverty, our fight on poverty on, on results, on outcomes. Are we actually getting people out of poverty or not? This is what basically I'm focusing most of my time on these days because I, we've been stuck in this ideological fight. We've been stuck in a partisan fight on these issues. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's the question set up kind of the way you just described it. And I just, let's get, let's get away from ideology, let's get away from partisan politics, and let's just go with what works. And now we can do this. We now have the ability, I'm on the board of the Laboratory for Economic Opportunity at Notre Dame, it's where I'm teaching now. And, and they can measure the effectiveness of poverty programs and go with what works and what doesn't work. And, and you can track people and actually fundamentally change a person's trajectory in their lives through better effective poverty programs. So I really believe we are in a cutting edge area in fighting poverty in America because of the capital that we can put to it, the private sector know-how, and technology, data and analytics, to really do a better job of fighting poverty more effectively so that we are not talking about redistributing or the rich versus poor, but we're talking about opportunity, upward mobility, and clearing barriers so people can make it in life I and having effective programs that help them do that. I don't hear the president talking about that. I don't hear That's other... That's why I talked about I my farewell address. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear other Republicans talking about that right now. What, why not? You hear Tim Scott talking about it a lot. Uh, Tim Scott... Senator from South Carolina. Senator from South Carolina. So you do. What I learned in politics lately uh, is... The stuff that has us at each, other throats, at each other's throat is what sells. The stuff that's controversial is what sells. The stuff that produces angst and anger and emotion is what sells. And just talking about things where we actually get along and agree doesn't sell. You probably don't know this, but this last session of Congress, we passed 1,175 bills in the House. About six or 700 of them made it into law. We usually pass about four or 500 bills. Uh, we, so we basically had, we had the most productive House session in, since Reagan's first term, I think. And 80% of the, more than 80% of those bills were bipartisan. Uh, but nobody knows this. I mean, you probably know more about Donald Trump's tweets on the 787 Dreamliner uh, than you knew that we overhauled the FAA system to build more airports and, and go to a, a GPS air traffic control system. We, we passed criminal justice reform, which we've been trying to do for 20 years, and more people know about just the consternation, the angst on TV. So my point is politics these days, underneath all the controversy, all the bitterness, all the polarization, there are still men and women of goodwill who don't necessarily agree with each other who are finding ways of working together to get things done. And this last two years actually showed that.
But I'm, I'm curious to know why we don't hear about it. I mean, the NewsHour program where I work, we try to cover the, you know, the most important things that are going on in Washington, and it, these things are not, we don't hear people talking about them. But uh, we'll see. Look, I think some of our, I mean, obviously, I think tax reform is important. We, we shut down the human trafficking websites, so there, there's about 87% reduction in human trafficking websites. We passed... Um, the 21st Century Cures Bill, where we have a real, real shot at getting cures for cancer, things like Alzheimer's. We had the single greatest offense on the opioid epidemic that Congress has passed. We overhauled our air traffic system. We overhauled our water um, infrastructure system. I mean, I can go on and on and on about all the various things that we've just done in Congress recently um, that I think are making a big difference in people's lives. But frankly, that stuff doesn't doesn't sell quite as well as us as, as, as hating each other and yelling at each other does these days. Well, let, let me ask you about one of the hot-button issues that, that you may be referring to. The president has focused a massive amount of attention on immigration. Is the GOP now the anti-immigration No, it's party? not. No, it's not. Um, this is the other thing I said at my farewell address, right? You, you probably teeing me up there. This is the one issue. that This and entitlement reform are the two things that I think, if we get... If we solve those two problems, we're going to have a great 21st century American century. We get our debt and entitlements under control, we're going to be in really good shape fiscally. And we solve our immigration challenges, we're going to be in great shape. This one, uh, I've, been, I've spent 25 years on this issue. It's the most vexing issue because politics always gets in the way at the end of the day on this. Um, I think there are a lot of people from the right and the left who could you know, on the back of a cocktail napkin, probably write an immigration deal, but politics always seems to get the best of it. My worry is identity politics gets played far too often on, on these issues. And that it's gonna take a breakthrough and you're gonna have to get past the presidential election if you're gonna fix this issue. I brought a bill to the floor in July, which would have solved the problem for the dreamers, would have secured the border, and it would have um, converted toward more of a, of a economic merit-based, because we have labor shortages in many areas. So you need to have visas. Um, uh, and I think we should have a guest worker program. I think that takes a lot of pressure off the border. There's a legitimate problem on the southern border. No two ways about it. Absolutely a serious problem. But we also have an utterly broken system. Uh, you know, we have these per-country caps. You know, Indians are waiting for like 30 years to get green cards. And it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So... If we can get this immigration issue fixed, then I think we're going to be in really, really good shape. But, but politics is what gets in the way with, of this. Mitch McConnell opened the floor up last year. Opened the floor up and let anybody bring anything they want, and they couldn't pass a thing. It just gives you a sense of how tough this issue is. Well, we saw, I mean, it, it, it came close during the Obama, at least they tried during the Obama administration. The perception was that Republicans stopped it right now. I could say the same thing about Barack Obama when George Bush did it. He, well, he supported the poison pill that stopped immigration reform in the Bush administration. But you now have, I mean, you now have, what, families coming across the border in record numbers. We are reading these heartbreaking stories every day, practically, about children separated from their parents, some of them in terrible conditions. I mean, how, how can this be happening in the United States of America? We need to change our asylum laws. They, they give a perverse incentive that if you can just come over and say the right thing, then you can come into the country. So there really isn't a, an effectual border. So we need to tighten up these asylum laws. I mean, By the way, this, I mean in a nutshell, what would that mean? Well, we, I, I can't remember exactly how we worded, but you need to tighten up the asylum laws so that, look, somebody fleeing persecution, somebody fleeing 
political persecution should be able to come and claim asylum. Somebody just immigrating for economic reasons is not an asylee. But the laws are so loose that it's easy to do that. And so you have a basic massive incentive for human trafficking. You have people putting their kids on trains, sending them up here, or having them be trafficked up through Latin America in, in, into America because of our lax asylum laws. That's, that's, that's a danger to the kids themselves who are being trafficked up into this country because of our loose asylum laws. We want to have political asylum, uh, asylum for people who are fleeing persecution, but you, that's not the way the system works right now. And if you want to take pressure off of the border, if you want to give people a chance to have a better life for themselves, then have a guest worker program. And it also helps solve some of our labor shortage problems. So I think there's, there's some common sense solutions here, but I got to tell you, it, it's both parties are, I'm not going to say this is the Democrats' fault, it's both parties are at fault for this, but I can, if you want to go through the last 20 years and say, you know, who's to blame for this, I'd say the blame falls on both sides. It, is, is the president's leadership right now helping? On this and the way he talks. Well, I think he's, 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 he's clearly, this, I, I'd love to you to come around and just do a town hall tour with a bunch of members of Congress on this issue. This is the issue you'll get the most from your constituents, at least in Republican districts. I can't speak for Democratic districts. And it's because people see lawlessness. They see a porous border. They see heroin coming into their school districts because of a, of a bunch of drugs coming over the, from the border. And so the sense of lawlessness is what he's trying to point out. And he's not going to get any cooperation from the other side of the aisle on this issue. Um, I think there's some absolutely common sense things you could do, confidence-building measures to fix this problem. But we put a bill on the floor that I thought was eminently reasonable in July, and the Democrats didn't want to have anything to do with it because, you know, Donald Trump was involved. So I think the president is pointing out the real fall, faults in the law. He's pointing out the problem with our asylum laws, and he's pointing out the fact that we have a porous border that we do need to secure. On the flip side of it, there are a lot of young people in this country who are brought here by their parents through no fault of their own that are kind of in this legal limbo. So there's a lot of people who are really stressed about this issue. I've always believed in, in an incremental approach on this particular issue. Take a few things at a time in bite-sized proportions, and you can have confidence-building immigration measures that can ultimately solve the problem. That's what we attempted to do last summer but we, we, we failed to get the votes to do it. I was struck because in, in your farewell address, you were talking about poverty at this point, but you, you, said, you had said this line, every life matters and every person deserves the chance to succeed. I mean, are you, are you saying that's not necessarily true? Well, that's not saying I want open borders and just anybody come. That means you, gotta, you, have, you have to be a country, you have to have borders, right. you have to secure right. borders. You have to be able to know who comes and goes in your country. I mean, that's, any country should be able to do that. Right. So that's, but yes, I believe when, for people here, that's why I focus on poverty. That's why I think. But the fact that we can't come up with some compromise on this, some. Yeah, the politics has just destroyed this issue. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Today's conversation featuring former Speaker of the House Paul Ryan and journalist Judy Woodruff is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The festival is underway and we invite you to view other onstage talks on our website. New videos are added daily on topics like politics, world affairs, design, emotion, and much more. Discover, learn, and get informed at aspenideas.org. That's aspenideas.org.
Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Judy Woodruff. I want to ask you about the Republican Party some more. You, you were, on the 10th anniversary of Jack Kemp's death, you tweeted, you praised the man who was your, who was your mentor. But a quarter century ago, when you were getting into politics, there was this, as you, and you've alluded to, this, this really fierce debate going on in the Republican Party between yeah. being inclusive and, yeah. and not being inclusive. Has the not inclusive side won? I mean, look yeah, at, there's, look at there's different labels you can throw around here, but I, yeah, aspirational inclusive politics is not winning the day these days. Um, but I'd say this is happening on both sides of the aisle. Uh, so I come from the Jack Kemp School. I, I believe in aspirational inclusive politics. And I've always believed, just because I think it's the right thing to do, that you try to motivate people to vote for you based on hope and optimism and growth and, and things like that. I learned that from Kemp. I think he probably got it from Reagan. And that is not the kind of politics we're playing today. It's, it's, one of the, it's actually one of the courses I'm work, teaching at Notre Dame is the polarization of our politics. And I think you're getting the same thing on the other side of the aisle. And what I, I fear is occurring here is we have what I call these entertainment wings of our parties. And the entertainment, you know, what I'm talking about. So you have the entertainment wings, which um, you can make a lot of money. A person can make a lot of money um, on polarization whether it's through you know, the internet, through websites, through whatever, cable. And in the old days, like 10 years ago, um, it used to be a meritocracy in politics. You used to have to like work your way up, prove your worth, get things done, compromise, negotiate, pass reforms, and prove yourself. And then maybe you could you know, run for president or, or, or be a governor or something like that. You can leapfrog that whole thing these days because um, the entertainment wings of the Democrats are the same thing. You can leapfrog um, what I'd call the old meritocracy and, and just have a really good digital following, be very good on television and radio, and do extremely well. And the incentive structure in that ecosystem is not hope, optimism, inclusiveness. It is, it, is, it is angst, it is emotion, it's fear, it's envy, it's whatever you, you think. But th there are people who make millions of dollars on both sides frustrating all of this, polarizing all of this. And I think this, is, this, this sort of system has really polarized our politics. So we're not, you know, I don't see this on the left, no offense, but I don't see this on the left either. I don't see hopeful, inclusive politics. I see people kind of angry running for office, and that to me is, 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 is something does, that we're gonna have to try and hopefully change. Well, I was gonna ask you about this later, but does that explain why Joe Biden is leading in the polls? I mean, it, I mean is that what you're- I think, I think I, that's not what you're I actually kind of feel sorry for him because they're all, he's got 23 guns pointed at him right now. Um, you know, Joe, is that what, there's 24 people in the race? I, I kind of lost count, I think. Somebody else jumped in the race today. Oh, who? A former congressman from Pennsylvania named Joe Sestak. Oh, I know Joe Sestak. Yeah, he yeah. was an admiral, yeah, I know. Um, Okay, that's 25 people running um, for Congress. But I, mean, uh, I think Joe's the one exception in the field on this point. He's the one exception. I think the other... Biden. Uh, yeah, Joe Biden. Sorry, yeah, 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 Biden. Yeah, I've known him a long time. Uh, I think he is the one exception, and all the rest of them are running, um, you know, basically they're going to... He's in what I call the Jeb Bush slot, you know. No, I like Jeb a lot. He's a friend of mine, but they're all going to shoot at him. He's the front runner. He is the only one who is kind of running what I'd call a centrist type of campaign, and all the other ones are running hard to the left. 
And that just shows you where the space, look, you're asking a conservative to, to handicap or criticize the other side of the party, but they're all running pretty hard left. And I think that's gonna help the president, frankly. And Joe's gonna get hit from both sides. And whether he can endure and stick onto that for a year and a half is anybody's guess. I mean, there are a few other candidates who would call themselves centrist. Pete Buttigieg, I, 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 don't, uh, know. I don't know. Um, Michael Bennett, uh, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, it, 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 <laughs> I mean, what is it, it, it? Can the Republican Party be, as it's presently constituted, permanently a majority? I mean, what is it going to take? No party for the can Republican be a permanent majority. Okay. No party can be a permanent. This is never going to happen. Can't. But, but you're acknowledging the Republican Party needs to do more right now to reach out. Yes, to so I come from a certain wing of the party. African Americans, absolutely. Latino I've always believed Americans, this. And so yeah, but you know, I mean, you know, I mean, we know each other. But I've always believed this. But the kind of politics I've always believed in is not ascendant these days. And um, the president obviously is the head of the party because he's the president. And when your party has a president, that person's the head of the party. Underneath this. And, and, and if it's in one and a half years or in five and a half years, um, there'll be a big fight for the soul of the party, just like the Democrats have been having. We, we had this when Clinton was president. And that is a big sort of intellectual fight that's, that's ongoing. It's just kind of starting to just murmur right now, protectionism versus and all these issues. Is Joe Biden, I mean, just to pick up on that, is Joe Biden the toughest, uh, the potentially toughest opponent for I President so. Trump? I think so. If you look at um, the Rust Belt states, like my state of Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, that's sort of the secret to the Electoral College. Um, I spent a lot of time studying the Electoral College in 2012, and you know, you, you've, got, you've got the blue states that you bank on. If you're a Democrat, you've got the red states you bank on it as a Republican. And then you can kind of play it with what's in the middle for this current Electoral College makeup and strategy, it's those Rust Belt states. And in those states, let's just take Wisconsin, for example, which obviously I know the best. Um, for, for us, we have to have a fusion of two kinds of groups of voters. There's what you would now think of as the Trump-based um, voter, which is the old Reagan Democrat voter, a blue-collar, um, um, more rural voter that is very, very, uh, very strong Trump, very, he, that's, that's a lockdown base. Then you have that suburban, um, college-educated uh, Republican-type voter that we've typically relied on as our base supporters, about half my districts. I, I represent a bunch of the, the counties around Milwaukee. And those two groups together give you, um, as a Republican, a plurality to win a state like Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania. And the question for the Democrats will be who best can you know, deny that coalition. I don't see the, the hard progressives being able to do that. I think we can beat um, um, the, the so hard progressives. Sanders, Warren. Yeah, I think we can beat them uh, in, in our kinds of states. Joe, because of his history um, and just, I think the lane he's trying to, you know, he's trying to hang onto this lane probably has the better chance, but I have a hard time seeing him getting out of the primary, frankly. But who am I to, you know, I'm a Republican, so <laughs> who knows? What did, what did you make of his statement the other day that he, um, reminiscing about how he was able to work with conservative Democrats who were segregationists? Yeah, I didn't even know who those guys were. It shows you how, you know, young I am, I guess. Um, 
I mean, I know what he was trying to say, uh, but they got viciously, he got viciously attacked by his primary opponents. That's why I just have a hard time seeing him going the distance and lasting the primary. I did notice John Lewis, who's a friend of mine, came to his defense. I think Clyburn did too, and Hakeem Clyburn, Jeffries. Clyburn did too. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. Which, was, I, which was good of them to do that, but that just, that, just that little chapter of last week just shows you, he's, I think he's just gonna suffer a death of a thousand cuts over the next you know, number of months. You said in a, in a speech not too long ago that the race, you said <laughs> if the, this race is about President Trump's personality, then Republicans lose. Yes, yeah, so what, if I were the Democrats, what I would, what I would try to do. What did you mean by that? Here's what I, here's what I meant by that. They're going to say, here's what I think they're going to do. I mean, look, um, I've been around this a bit. Whoever gets the nomination is going to go hard left to get the nomination. Whoever of the Democrats, they're going to be, they're going to go hard left, so they can win the heart and the mind of of the of the of the primary voter, the caucus voter, and get the nomination. And they're going to scare people. Medicare for all, you know, abolishing ICE. These are scary ideas to people in the center in this country and all of Republicans. And their pollster is going to come to them in September, October. When is the convention in Milwaukee? Is that the end of July? Yeah. Their pollster is going to come to them then and say, you can't run on these things. This is, you will lose, this is, this is McGovern. You know, you're not going to win this. You've got to go after Donald Trump and after his personality. That's what I think whoever comes out of the Democratic primary who just whether it's a Joe Biden who moves left to get the primary or probably a, a progressive who just wins the thing, they're going to have to try and pivot. It will be too late for them to effectively pivot their brand or the, the policies they're known for, and they're just going to go attack the president. The president, this is why I think it's his to lose, he's got this great economy, he's got this great record of accomplishment underneath him. People don't like the tweeting. Believe me, I was Speaker of the House. <laughs> Uh, people don't like the tweeting and they don't like, you know, some of the some of the noise that comes with it, but they like the performance of the economy. They like the fact that their neighbor has a job. They like the fact that their kid graduated college and has two job offers that they're sitting on. So he has a great record to run on. Are you better off today than you were four years ago? He will win that equation, that test. So that's why I say they're going to have to make it a personality contest and try and get the, the country to not focus on the substance, the policy achievements, what's going on right now in, in the economy. And that's how they're going to try and win this thing, by going after his personality. You mentioned Medicare for all. People like Medicare, as it is. Can Republicans run on health care? I mean, is the, do Republicans have a great record? I hope them? they run on Medicare for all. We will, we will, that would <laughs> but what about the Republicans' record on health care? Well, we, we, pass, we've, we lost by a vote. We, we, would have, we would have been able to pass this a health care bill. Yeah, this is the bill. But it, it, we repealed and replaced in that bill. Most people don't know that. I think the better way, we can go, I don't know how much time we got, don't have enough time, but we can have, we can have a system in this country where you can lower the cost of health care and people who are uninsured get insurance. We put more focus on the poor and the sick than, than the healthy and the wealthy. And people with pre-existing conditions can get total full coverage without going bankrupt. We can have a system like that in this country. And oh, by the way, I think the best way to do that is to have a decentralized system where we have more choice and more competition. Lots of choices, not a monopoly. Not a government monopoly, not an insurance monopoly. That's what we attempted to pass, and that's what failed by a vote. Medicare for all bans private insurance. Medicare for all says the 180 million Americans who have their insurance through their employer 
don't get it anymore. But there are a number and of you Democrats get it through who are the not government. for Medicare for All. Most, so. of the front, most of the people running for president are for Medicare for All. But just so you know, Medicare for All basically means Medicare for none. It will bankrupt Medicare. Medicare is already more than 50% on borrowed money. Medicare goes bankrupt in the next decade. You do this, you accelerate the bankruptcy of Medicare, jeopardizing Medicare for senior citizens while taking away the private insurance that people already right now have. So this would be a great thing for our side of the aisle to run against. And that is why I say you can't run for Medicare for all in the, in the Democratic Party, turn around and, and run on that in the general election. That's why I think they're going to try and turn this into a personality contest. But, it, but if you make it sound understandable, why hasn't your party been able That's to come up with a health proposal? Darn good question. Proposal? Well, we, we did come up with a health care proposal. Why can't we sell it as well? Our specific problem in this issue is we had to write a bill through Senate reconciliation rules, which was really frustrating to okay, us. Okay, you can stop there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, see, you get wonky, you get into the, into the, into the minutiae, um, but I, I think if we can crack the code on healthcare, if you can get the ideology out of healthcare, and just say, look, we're not trying to do some big experiment and have this all run by government. I mean, the last thing you want to do in this 21st century where we're used to customizing things in our lives, where we're used to disruption and choice and competition, is stop all of that in healthcare. You want more of that in healthcare. We spend so much money on healthcare. Let's spend it more effectively through the person and give more to the poor and the sick to help them get healthcare and have a system of competition and choice. That, to me, is the best possible solution for healthcare. But in order to do that, you have to drop this idea that this, is, this has got to be run by the government. And so right now, ideology, I would argue, is the biggest stumbling block for us getting health. Ron Wyden and I had a, health, had a Medicare reform proposal. Alice Rivlin, rest in peace, one of the one of most wonderful human beings I've ever known, center-left person, she and I had a Medicare and Medicaid proposal. Uh, so people from the left and the right can compromise on this issue, but you gotta get off the ideology and think that we're gonna have socialized medicine. And that's unfortunately the dialogue we're having right now. Okay, we've got 13 minutes left. So I'm, I'm, I wanna ask you just a couple of questions about Russia okay. and what happened in 2016. Uh, the Mueller report, uh, whether you've read it or not, what do you make of what it says about President Trump's actions and the actions of his campaign? So you're talking about part two. Um, in the, so obviously I oversaw um, all of our intelligence investigations. Um, we did our own investigation in the House, the Senate did theirs, and we all came up to the same conclusion. There was no evidence of collusion. I think, uh, so Mueller did exactly what I expected him to do. And by the way, we gave him the time and the space to do what he did. Um, and he came up with the conclusion I more or less expected. Um, on the interactions within the White House, uh, he, he put that out for the, for the country to see. There's obviously, I don't think, anything that's impeachable in there. I think that they'd make a big mistake if they go down that road. Um, they would just help the president. So frankly, the Mueller report was um, not a surprise to me. It basically came up with the conclusions I, I expected it to come up with. Right now, Democrats are trying to get legislation passed to strengthen election security in 2020. So far, Republicans have blocked it. Yeah. Leader McConnell. There's a federalism issue here. So obviously, Mitch, I've had lots of conversations about this. Um, let's back up for a second. What people, I hope, if you look at, if you go read and look in this, what we keep, seem, seem to forgetting is Russia is trying to meddle with us. So let's not forget here, Russia is trying to screw up our democracy and others. They, they did it in Moldova, they did it in Poland, they did it in France. 
So let's just remember our democracy is under attack from illegal, illiberal regimes like Russia. So point one there. Point two, how do you um, buttress the integrity of elections? There are things you can do at the federal level to do that that are being done. But where Mitch, I think, is correct is you have to remember this is, we, we have a federalism system. States run their elections. So do you want to go to a point where you're nationalizing the conduct of elections or not? We believe in the Constitution and the federalism, and we don't want to have um, a, 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 anything to be used as a proxy to nationalize and federalize elections. That's where Mitch is coming from. A states' rights system where the states decide how elections are conducted in their states is to be preserved. We can help on the back end with the technology, meaning we, I'm not in government anymore, but the federal government and Homeland Security well, then, can do a lot of things to help the states make sure that they're not getting hacked. And we didn't have a real hacking problem from the Russians. We had more of a, of a bots and misinformation campaign problem with the, with the Russians. That is where the federal government can make but, a big difference. But there doesn't seem to be any urgency on the part of the Republican leadership. My question, and we know the president is very reluctant, he's reluctant to even acknowledge that this, yeah, that, you know, that I, the I can't speak to that. Russians All I would so say is, the this, question just, is just, just let me why, just say, this administration, there is a lot that is being done. I know this just from having left six months ago, there is a lot that our intelligence community does do to try and prevent the Russians from doing what they've done before, what we should assume they're gonna try and do again. There is a lot that is happening there, and that there is more that has been done um, at the state level to help guarantee the security of our election systems. That is happening. One thread hanging from the Obama administration is when Obama administration officials came to the leadership of Congress, uh, you as then speaker mm -hmm. and, and Mitch McConnell, to say, let's come up with a joint statement to the country. Yeah. This, was, this was in October yeah. of 2016. Yeah, I remember the To meeting. say Russian, mm -hmm. the Russians are creating problems, and we want all the states to know this. You and Leader McConnell said, no, we're not going to No, that's not true. Line. We signed that letter. Because they, the Democrats say... No, we, we sent that letter out. Go Google it. You can find it. We sent the letter out. Okay. Yeah. Mitch wanted to make some edits to the letter because he was a little concerned about the points I just raised, but we sent that letter out. And what did so it, that was a letter from Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Paul Ryan, and, and Mitch McConnell letter, and what was the to, the to the states warning them of this threat that was, on, that was coming. That letter went out. Then why is that still... Uh, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> okay. All right. That letter went out. All right. I'm going to go check that out because yeah. I was told it. The letter went out. Um, why, why haven't more Republicans stood up to President Trump when they disagreed with him? We, frankly, if you go back, you remember he and I didn't have the best relationships in 16 during the campaign. You know, I ended up disinviting him to come to Wisconsin, you know, in October 16th or something like that. What I learned was... You're far more effective, far better keeping um, it private. You'll have far more success uh, on things keeping it private than having a public spat. Because if you go out and you just fight in public, then, then you're not going to actually accomplish what you're trying to accomplish, which is to change policy or, or to, to, to get an acknowledgement that we should do something differently. So my practice evolved into... Let's keep these things private and let's have vibrant, strong conversations. He and I had plenty of arguments over the phone, in person, over lots of issues. And I found, actually, I think, I think he appreciated And then when he didn't read about it in the paper the next day, I think he appreciated it and I think it was more successful. So I think a lot of Republicans have kind of learned 
air your grievances personally and privately, and you'll have a better success at achieving what you're trying to achieve. Um, that's point one. Point two, um, a lot of our congressional districts, he has, you know, 90-something approval ratings in. So a lot of Republicans, this is particularly the House, statewide races are a little different. A lot of, a lot of House members, he is extremely popular in their districts. So if you're going to go after the head of the party that is more popular than you are in your congressional district, you may not want to think about doing that. So I think, <laughs> I think a lot of that's just, that's just politics. Survival. A lot of people, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but frankly, I just think what he appreciates is when you have a problem, you take it to him directly and you don't do it out on TV, and you're actually going to be more successful with your, with, with your, your persuasion skills. How much more disagreement is there with him or with his policies than what we see on the surface? More than you think. And what, and what no, I'm just saying on an, in a given basis, on just various things. I mean, gosh, appropriation I mean, trade, bills and appropriate. trade. Yeah, I, I, too, I mean, I'm kind of known for not liking the 232. These are the aluminum and steel tariffs that we passed. Um, that they, they, the, the executive branch has a lot of authority in tariffs. They can just do it. Um, it's not something that I, I, I actually think Congress should do that, but, but, but that's not the way the law works. So I don't like those tariffs. I think it's bad for manufacturing states like Wisconsin. Um, and, and those are prominent areas of disagreement. So every now and then you'll have a prominent area of disagreement because you can't fix it on the inside. But there are a lot of issues that you want to try and change administration policy that you're more successful doing if you keep, if you keep it private and air your grievances privately than going publicly. The polls are now showing that this president, President Trump, is more popular with the Republican rank and file than any president in modern history, including Ronald Reagan. So my question is, is the GOP now clearly the party of he's, Trump? He's the head of the I mean, party of Donald Trump. And the, G, and the Democrats were the party of Barack Obama when he was the president. And they're the party of Bill Clinton when he was the president. He is the, the Republican president. So just, I mean, that's the way it works. Your president is the head of your party. Now, I would say what I think people get excited about is he's taking on, he's not taking any crap. I mean, he's, he's taking on political correctness. He's taking fights that a lot of people want to see fought. Uh, the forgotten man that he speaks to is a person that finally feels like they're being taken seriously, they're being paid attention to, and he's concerned about their issues. That is the guttural core of what I would call the, the party base right now, the Trump base. I cannot tell you how many times, just running around America, particularly in Wisconsin, where people who really didn't participate in politics much at all before said, that guy speaks to me. That guy actually is doing something that's making a difference in my life. So it's guttural, and, and I know people see, oh my God, this Twitter and the, the things he said about this person and that person just drives people nuts. What that, that base Republican voter sees, this guy's not backing down and he's fighting for me. That's, what, that's why he has those numbers you just described. And, and setting a good example for, for children, for the next generation. <laughs> <laughs> I answered your question. I'm sorry? I said I answered your question. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan, you said you're, you're the, it's the party of the president while he's the president. The party, the Republican Party was the party of Ronald Reagan for long after he was in office. Is, it, is that going to be the case with the Republican Party? I don't know is the answer Trumpism or whatever? I think it depends on if he has, I mean, I think it's his to lose, like I said. But if, if, it, if he's the president for eight years, yeah, that's probably likely the case. Uh, I think... What, I'm, what I don't know is how is all this churning going to sort itself out in politics? 
I really think democracy around the world is being stress tested right now. We're seeing a stress test on democracy from um, countries like China and Russia meddling in democracy. We're seeing stress tests on democracy from um, digital and cable and um, the internet, which is these entertainment wings that I'm talking about. You're seeing a stress test of populism running through Europe that is making it impossible for them to even form governments. I mean, look at, look at Theresa May's out and I don't know, Boris is in or maybe not. I mean, you're, you're having a hard time seeing democracy get through um, the ugliness and the messiness of free societies in the 21st century. I think we're gonna pass this test, uh, but I think we've gotta do more to make sure that we do. So this isn't just Donald Trump. This is democracy in the 21st century, and frankly, the challenge that I worry about more isn't about you know, what's, what's gonna happen next week or next year. What I worry about is our system of self-determination, liberty, freedom, a constitutional government going to be able to persist against you know, a country of 1.4 billion people run by one guy or maybe seven people at best that is leaner and meaner and can make quicker decisions? Is, is democracy gonna be able to survive in the test that it's gonna have with these illiberal dictatorships? That to me is the far more important question for the 21st century, not the populistic politics of the moment, but can democracy itself, we determine our own lives through our elected representatives and our government, can that system succeed going into the future or not? That to me, frankly, is the bigger challenge for us. And it's not just America, it's, it's, it's all of the Western world. It's, it's the democracies of the world. That's the question. And so you're, you're talking about symptoms when underneath that is a bigger test of, of, of our type of government. And, is, and what's your gut and telling you? I think we're gonna do fine. I think we're gonna get through it. But I think it's going to be a bumpy ride between now and then. And I think free people will always come out on top because that's where you get creativity and innovation. It's what Churchill said. Democracy is the worst possible form of government except for all the other forms of government. Right. <laughs> you know? right. And he also said the Americans um, will get it right after they've exhausted all the Every other possibilities. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm just a classic optimist. I think we'll get it right. But I think we're, we're enduring new types of tests. So on the policy front, it's things like immigration and healthcare and entitlements. But on the democracy front, it's, it's how do we have a civil society and a civil debate and how do we um, address people's needs and concerns without the temptation of having you know, um, these illiberal regimes coming through and, and cleaning our clocks. Last question, Paul Ryan, uh, future in public service. I'm enjoying, I'm starting teaching in Notre Dame this fall. I've got the, the poverty things I'm working on. I'm spending a ton more time with my family. Um, Jana and I have, you know, we had three teenagers. I was home about a day a week for the last four years. It was just, it just got to me. I just couldn't keep doing that. So I'm really loving just the fact that I got a lot of family time and I'm working on things that I really care about. So for now, I'm, I'm going through a de-aging process right now. I hope, you, I don't know if you could tell this. I just, I mean, you, the gray's leaving my hair. This is the most formal I've dressed in a long time. Very, I, there's this lady at the grocery store I always go to. She's 92 years old. And I always would pass her in the aisle. I'm one of these routine people who goes to the store at the same time. And she just grabbed me about a, a month ago, and she said, you just look so different. You know, your face, you're less stressed. You know? So frankly, I'm just really enjoying um, life after. I did 20 years in Congress, so I'm really enjoying life 
But you told um, me you're on the phone Congress. with some of your friends in Congress sure. almost every day. So. Not every, every week. Every week, okay. Paul Ryan, thank you very much. You bet, you bet. Thank you, Jim. All right, thanks. Paul Ryan led the U.S. House of Representatives from 2015 to early 2019. He chaired the House Ways and Means Committee and the House Budget Committee. He spearheaded passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Judy Woodruff is anchor and managing editor of PBS NewsHour. For four decades, she's covered politics and other news as an anchor or senior correspondent at PBS, CNN, and NBC. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 23, 2019. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen on our new website, aspenideas.org. Follow hashtag Aspen Ideas. Today's show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.